Fancy podcast. Uh, this is a sports edition. Uh, today, we're lucky enough to have a baseball writer and historian, creator of the Hall Ball, and personal mentor of mine, Ralph Carhart. How are you, bud? I'm great, Oscar. How are you doing this morning? Oh, you know, wearing my uh, my Pedro jersey uh, from the <laughs> Mets. This is uh, this is how I felt like I needed to come in today. Yeah, that's excellent. I am, I am also actually coincidentally wearing a Mets T-shirt. Look at you. Um, so we're 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 dressed for the we're dressed for the show. <laughs> so let's just get right into it. Obviously, the MOB isn't playing right now. Uh, we'd be starting up the season uh, today is uh, April tenth, so we'd be about a week into the season. Nothing like this has happened before. What do you think the MOB should do now? Uh, I know there are talks about having games in just Arizona this summer and starting the season out there. What do you think about that? Um, I, I have to be honest, and this is a, a very painful thing for me to say, but but I, I think the best thing for Major League Baseball to do at this point, in, in my opinion, is um, to just call the season a loss. I think any attempt to try and get games going and players together um, quickly enough to have anything resembling a meaningful season um, is is dangerous. I think it's a little too fast. I think it's a little too early. Um, I, I know that, uh, is this just uh, a concern but, with just the players and teams or cause they're talking about having it with no fans. So, right. I mean, that's part of it too. You're, you're the product that they're, that they're going to be creating is not the product that we're used to seeing. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it'll, it will be a substandard product. Um, but, but beyond that, I, I'm more concerned quite frankly about the, the emotional and the the health risks to the players. Um, you know, part of this arrangement involves them not seeing their families for four and a half months, um, mm. which is, you know, it's not a fair thing for us, the fans to ask of them. We have as fans, we have, um, we tend to feel a little entitled. We tend to feel as though baseball players and the, and the game itself owes us something. And that's not actually the case. These guys who play this game are human beings mm-hmm. um, who have emotions and families and, and kids. Um, I know there are plenty of guys who would do it. You know, there's there's plenty of single guys and there are plenty of family guys who for them, the game is important enough um, to them that they would make that choice. Mm-hmm. But, but I also am quite sure that there's plenty of other players for whom this would would be a cruel and unfair burden that I don't think we should ask of them. And, and then there's also, you know, beyond the emotional, there's the health risks. You know, you are asking people, you're asking guys to be in a locker room together, especially if we're going to, you know, if we're going to play all these games in Arizona, that means we're essentially playing in spring training facilities, which is essentially minor league facilities, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, don't have the opulence of like the new Mets, uh, uh, um, dressing room that they've got there, you know, the new Mets player area. That's so, uh, um, uh, Oh, that was in St. Lucie, right. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that, that new fancy St. Lucie down in one down in St. Lucie that the minor league players aren't allowed to use. Um, most of the, most of the teams aren't going to have palatial digs like those. So it's going to be those closer type quarters that they had when they played minor league ball. And since you are a historian, at any point, has anything like, obviously this is, this is completely different, but uh, 
anything like this where we just call a season where we just say it's a lost cause. There's no point in playing it. Uh, well, you know, there other than was, like a stri- other than a player strike, obviously, right? Players strike, the player strikes, right. 1981 and 1994. You know, 1994 was was lost to the the World Series was lost to the strike. 1981 was that split season that they did because of the strike. Um, the the seasons, uh, I believe, uh, the 1918 season um, when the Spanish flu came through um, was an abbreviated season. They didn't um, just you know call it. The timing on it was different. It wasn't happening. It wasn't hitting right when you know the season was supposed to begin. The season was already well underway, um, but they shortened the season. Um, and, and just got to the World Series a little bit faster that year because of the flu. Beyond that, I'm trying to think. I don't think there is any other point in baseball history where a, a pandemic has uh, interrupted baseball. Labor strikes, war, those sorts of things have, have briefly interrupted sure. baseball, mm-hmm. um, but, but not disease. I thought it was interesting that even there's even plans to, to come out and start the season in the summer and end it. Uh, once it gets cold in like a dome stadium, like in Minnesota or Houston. And I thought that mm-hmm. was, that was an interesting take on it. I, I I'm, I'm also in, in the same page with you where it's not even close to us even being able to uh, make that call yet to even mm-hmm. think that far ahead uh, where we can have players just safely be around each other. You know, right. It's, the, the the one version of this in my head that that I could see potentially, and this is only potentially because there's there's too many dominoes that need to fall for it to to be practical. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if if the curve keeps trending downward like it seems like it's it's starting to do, if we can maintain that and and the the curve going down doesn't make everyone morons who decide that now it's okay <laughs> to leave their house and then the curve is suddenly going back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if we can all behave and do the right thing and be patient and wait, maybe by the fall, what they could do is set up something like a tournament, like a world baseball classic type tournament where you can get all the teams in there and have them participate in like a two or three week span. It certainly wouldn't be, you know, the end result certainly wouldn't be the world series. I don't necessarily think you should call the winner of that the World Series champion. The World Series is a is a title that you earn after the long six month slog of a baseball season, right? Um, but you could do some kind of, of World Baseball Classic classic style tournament, um, you know, where it's a double elimination or something like that. Yeah, man, I I just I just think it's interesting that the NFL is going to be the first thing we watch, and not baseball. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it'll. Um, I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Like you know, uh, training camp for them begins in like a month and a half or something, doesn't it? I mean, soon anyway. I would uh, be slightly yeah. exaggerating, but but you know, I don't think that the the country is going to be in a place where they're even going to be able to begin training camp on time. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're, thinking you're about starting in be, June. Yeah, so. right. I, I think you're going to be seeing a shortened season even in the NFL. Or they'll just, you know, push it back. They could do that. They can push things back. They're used to playing in the cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they could maybe have the Super Bowl at the end of February instead of the end of January or, or however. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think their season's going to be affected as well. I don't think they're going to get off scot-free on this. What are you missing the most right now? From uh, What am I missing the most right now? Well, here's the funny thing for me um, where um, as a historian, um, I, I pay a lot more attention on a day-to-day basis about stuff that happened in like 1888, um, <laughs> than, um, what's happening right now. So you're I, right I, full I, of contact. I, 
<laughs> I, I would go, you know, I could go a couple of weeks and, and not actually know what the standings are. Um, I will often usually have the, the, the sound of it in the background, right? I'll turn on the transistor radio because I do still listen to baseball <laughs> on a transistor radio. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I'll have that playing in the background. So it is sort of the music of my, of my spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I feel that emptiness, but, but I have so my baseball life is so much more than what's happening today. Um, that it's, uh, it's giving me a chance to, you know, explore other things. Uh, I'm working on a couple of chapters, uh, for a book on Jackie Robinson, uh, I am writing my own book um, that's uh, uh, on the history of the game in Brooklyn. And uh, right now, I'm actually, interestingly enough, one of my side gigs is uh, that I help people sell their baseball card collections. Oh, okay. And yeah. right right before all of the, uh, the shit hit the fan, um, I had just picked up a, a collection from a guy from who uh, was born in 1940. So his, his collection is made up primarily of those iconic cards from the, the 1950s, the Topps cards and then the Bowman cards from the 1950s. So I've been, you know, swimming through a sea of uh, 60, 70 year old baseball cards right now. Yeah. I've seen and, you post uh, a few pictures on your Twitter. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah it's, uh, it's been fun. I've been having fun doing that. Um, so I, my baseball life is, is in a way just as rich as it's always been. I'm watching a whole bunch of old world series games. Cause if you go to mm. YouTube, you can find a bunch of those. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I miss baseball. And at the same time, I don't certainly not as much as most fans. Um, you know, most fans for them, baseball is what is happening today, what is happening right now. Right. And for them, this is, this is a tragedy, you know, because there's, it's already sort of a sad atmosphere out there in the world. <laughs> and, and one of the few things that, that is a consistent, joyful presence for, for a lot of fans is, is now missing. Right. Sports is um, it's a, it's a distraction from what's happening right, in day to day. All right. Uh, let's, let's go turn to a little bit of a lighter note, uh, at least, at least. Yes, please. For, <laughs> well, this is getting really depressing. <laughs> a little bit. Um, let's talk about your hall ball. Um, I know you, you stopped it. Uh, you started it in August of 2010. I have. Yes, that's correct. Tell us about it. Tell, tell people who haven't heard about it. Uh, I know, I know personally what the history of it is or some of it is. Um, but what is the hall ball? Um, uh, my wife and I were in Cooperstown. We were actually in Cooperstown the month before we were in Cooperstown in July of 2010. Um, we used to go there for um, the, the all-star game. The Hall of Fame does this really fun thing uh, for the all-star game uh, where if you, you sign up and you're a part of it, you get to go there after the museum closes at night and uh, watch the all-star game in the big movie theater that they have in there. That's fun. And they do trivia in between innings and, and uh, hand out hot dogs and popcorn and stuff. And it's a blast. Uh, and one night um, before... Uh, our dinner reservations, we had a little free time. Now, uh, my wife and I are genealogists. Um, We study family histories, which means that we 
tend to spend a lot more time in cemeteries than most normal people. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty normal. <laughs> so, so to, uh, to fill that, that space before our dinner reservation, we decided to check out the cemetery that was in Cooperstown. We didn't really think we had any relatives there, but we wanted to just look around and check it out. Mm. And while we were there, uh, my wife, Anna, found a stone for Abner Doubleday. Now, it, it turns out that it's not our Abner, the, the mythological creator of baseball who never actually really had anything to do with baseball whatsoever. Um, it was his grandfather. Our Abner is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Um, but seeing Abner's name written in stone in a cemetery like that had got me thinking uh, as to what it would be like to take a journey where I visited all of the Hall of Famers graves. And I, 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 I sort of became obsessed with that idea. I, I came home and I started doing the research as to what it would take to, to do a journey like that. And that's when I discovered um, that someone had already done that. Uh, there was a guy named Stu Thornley. He's a guy named Stu Thornley uh, who's a, 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 who has now become a friend uh, over, the, over the course of the project. Um, who had gone and visited all of the Hall of Famers graves. Um, so I was a little uh, stymied at first because I wanted to do something different. Uh, you know me where, you know, you, you and I know each other, Oscar, through theater. Mm. Uh, and and as, as an artist, I, I always want to try and approach my work from a different perspective. Right. And I wanted to do something different. Um, so that was when I got the idea. While we were in Cooperstown, in addition to finding Abner Doubleday's grave, my wife also found a baseball that she had pulled out of the creek uh, that was running next to the little ballpark that's in Cooperstown. If you've ever been there, there's a, a baseball uh, field there called Doubleday Field. Um, and she pulled the baseball out of that creek. And I decided that what I was going to do to make my project different <clears throat> was I was going to take that baseball to all of the graves. And I was going to take a picture of that baseball at all of the graves of the Hall of Famers. Um, but you didn't just I, do graves. You also did. I, well, that was that that was the evolution of the project. I, I got started <laughs> on that by doing the graves. And, and once I got started on that, I decided that there was no reason for me to stop with the graves. Why not bring it to the living guys as well? and sort of unite all of the Hall of Famers in a way that had never been done before. That was the project. That, that's the Hall Ball. Is it's, it's a baseball that I have now at this point taken to almost all of the members of the Hall of Fame, living and deceased, and I've taken their picture uh, with the ball. And the, the, the goal was to donate the ball to the Hall of Fame after I was done. I, I finished the project in 2018. Um, there were a total of five Hall of Famers that I did not photograph. And uh, I have a book coming out in a couple of months. And if you read the book, you'll find out why I didn't get those five Hall of Famers. Oh, look at you um, teasing. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. You're gonna, I'm not telling you the whole story or else no one's going to buy the book. Uh, you're right. Um, hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my chat with Ralph. It was good to talk baseball with someone as knowledgeable and passionate as him. And we're about to get into the Hall Ball some more, but first, some quick notes. Make sure to check out Ralph's book, The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to Unite Cooperstown's Immortals with a Single Baseball. It should be out in June. It'll have even more stories than the ones you'll hear later on in this episode. 
you can get it directly through the McFarland publisher website or on Amazon. Uh, just make sure to look up the Hall Ball book uh, or Ralph's name, Ralph Carhart. Uh, links will all be down in the show notes. We're on social media, so follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Nothing Fancy Pod. I post updates and links to our guests there sometimes, so it's a good place to check up on a podcast. Uh, you can always email us at uh, nothingfancypod at gmail.com with comments, questions, feedback, anything. We're also on all your favorite podcast players. Still working on a couple more, but subscribe on Google Pods or Spotify so you don't miss these weekly episodes. Again, thanks for listening. I'm having a lot of fun doing this. That's all I have this week. So remember to be kind, stay safe and healthy, and I'll see y'all next time. Uh, I donated, I, I attempted to donate the ball to the Hall of Fame in October of 2018 and, um, and they rejected it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that really so, sucked. Yeah. I remember seeing that post and <laughs> it was like, rough for a couple of weeks. It yeah, was rough. I was like, what? I feel like I've wasted eight years. Um, but there, in the end, it actually turned out, um, to be the best thing, um, because there's lots of baseball museums out there. The hall of fame is not the only baseball museum that's mm-hmm. in the country. Um, there's one out in Pasadena, California called the baseball reliquary. And I, I approached them with it and, um, they were ecstatic to take it and it's a good home for it. Um, the hall of fame, you know, and I, and I talk about this in the book, the hall of fame is a very, it's a sacred place, right? They take it. Um, they take what they do very seriously. The, the hall ball, the hall ball's a little weird, you know? Um, if you go to the Hall of Fame and you're looking at these pictures of, you know, all these guys, you know, the Ty Combs and the Babe Ruths, the pictures that we're looking at are of them when they were young and strong baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's not a lot of artifacts floating around in there that highlight their mortality. Right. You know, it, it, it's more geared towards pointing out that they were baseball gods. Um, and to, to have an artifact like the hall ball, which really more than anything points out that they're human, that, that even the greatest will at some point cease to be. Um, it, it's, I, I can understand why the hall of fame didn't want it. The baseball reliquary is just full of all kinds of weird shit. Um, <laughs> they have, they just have a bunch of really cool, bizarre artifacts. Um, you know, they have like doc Ellis's hair curlers, and and a half-eaten hot dog that that Babe Ruth chewed on, like they have they have weird stuff like that. And the hall ball was was a perfect fit for them and their quirky, unique look at the game. And it, is it it's staying there? It's it's a permanent installment. Or, yes, you... it's a, it's permanently there. I'm um the the other advantage to the ball going to them as opposed to the Hall of Fame donated it to the hall of fame it's it's the hall of fames um whether or not i could ever get the ball back in a few years to do an update or anything like that um was uh was a question as to whether or not that would ever happen um the baseball reliquary if i want the ball back like for example one of the things i would like to do once the book comes out 
is to is to go and do readings at um, other museums around the country. Some of those other baseball museums, and, and bring the ball with me, and have the ball do a short little stay at these other museums. And the baseball reliquary is more than happy to to give me the ball back to to accomplish that goal. Um, but it is essentially um, part of their permanent collection now. Now, why after eight years did you decide to just to to hang it up and say this is complete? Well, there was I, I had finished. It took me eight years to get to all of the graves. Uh, I got to the last grave in April of 2018. Um, and uh, at that point, all that was left were living guys. Um, I went to uh, the induction that summer and got as many of the remaining living guys as I could. Um, and then I decided that I was done. You know, one of the quirks of the project is that it could in theory go on in perpetuity, right? It could go on forever. There's new Hall of Famers every year. So I could I would, could always just keep updating it annually. Um mm. but I didn't I, I didn't want to keep chasing after the living guys. I have to be honest, <laughs> by the end, trying to connect with the living Hall of Famers was my least favorite part of the project. Um is that it just involved they were a difficult lot of, to to reach or? right and it involved a lot of hours standing in line and, you know, waiting uh, um, to meet the guys. And, and some of them, you know, some of them were really great about it. Some of them, you know, thought it was fun or weird or whatever. And, and the interactions were great. Some of them were not so positive uh, about it. It was, you know, they, when I came up to the hall, the living hall of famers, You'd have had I asked perfect them for your elevator pitch. Oh, I totally perfected the elevator pitch. I had to wrap down to like 30 seconds, less than 30 seconds. They knew what the story was in about, in about 20 seconds. They're used to people coming up to them and asking for an autograph. Um, I didn't want an autograph. There are no signatures on the ball. I, I only took the pictures. I didn't get the autographs. Um, there were multiple reasons for why I didn't do the autographs. Part of it was just pure logistics. It's one baseball and there's at any point 70 living hall of famers. Right. But the the other part of it is that signatures are essentially a commodity. Um, you know, that that's how baseball players make a living once they retire for the most part. Um, some of them become businessmen and do things, but oh, you know, for a lot of them, that's, that's the gig. And I didn't want the project to be a commodity. I didn't want to make, you know, I had no intention of ever selling it. Um, I didn't want it to become something that was valued solely by the signatures that were on it. I wanted it to have more meaning than that. Um, so I was going up to these guys and not asking for a signature, which for them was weird and put a lot of them, um, on guard. And for, you know, for some of them, um, it was not a fun interaction. <laughs> they thought I was a weirdo. Johnny Bench, Johnny Bench called me an asshole. Um, <laughs> um, it's, uh, there were some moments when it wasn't when it wasn't enjoyable. So once I had gotten all of the graves and I had attempted, you know, I I, I photographed. Uh, I think in the end it was seventy-two living Hall of Famers. Um, you know, and there were five left. Right. And one of them, I'll tell you, one of them. One of them was Tom Seaver, who um, had already at that point withdrawn from public life. His family made an announcement. It was probably about a year ago now that Tom was withdrawing from public life. He's uh, suffering dementia-like symptoms that were a result of uh, an extended uh, case of Lyme disease that he had. Uh, I've been undiagnosed for a while. 
I had reached out to them. I'd written them a letter to ask for the picture. And his wife, Nancy, wrote me a very lovely letter back just saying, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do. Good luck with the project. But Tom is Tom is not participating in public life anymore. There's mm. essentially no way you're ever getting this picture. Um, and, you know, the, the other four guys, the stories were somewhat similar, not entirely. Uh, you also, uh, you went to Cuba a few times to, to get some, I did, get some I pictures. Did. There's, there are three Hall of Famers. We think there are three Hall of Famers <laughs> <laughs> who are buried in Cuba. Um, so I went um, once, uh, 2014, I think was the first time I went. And, um, and I took the pictures of the three guys who were in Cuba. Um, but while I was there, I met a reporter who said to me that um, one of the, the guys who's buried down there, uh, Cristobal Torriente, um, he doesn't believe he's really buried there. He doesn't believe he was really buried at the cemetery where we believe he was buried. Um, so when I came home, I started doing some research um, to see what I could find out. And it, and it turned out that according to the best records that were available, um, he was buried actually in Queens, about uh, 15 minutes from, <laughs> from where, where, you, where you and I met. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so I went a, to Queens and I got the, home. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went to Queens and I took the, uh, I took the picture, um, uh, of the gravesite in Queens where, where we believe he was buried. And that happened to be, um, the timing of that coincided with the New York times hearing about my story. Uh, so I was, I was contacted by a New York times reporter who wanted to do a story about, uh, the hall ball. And he was wondering if I had anything coming up. And I said, well, there's this, you know, this guy in, was buried in Queens, who we thought was buried in Cuba, and he totally wanted to tell that story. So I, I told the world in the New York Times um, that I believe that Cristobal Torriente uh, was buried in um, Queens. And uh, about eight months after the story uh, was published, I got a Facebook message from a documentary filmmaker in Cuba uh, telling me that he believes he had found Torriente's body. Oh, um, this is quite Cuba. a journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in Cuba. So I had not, not in the place where we thought he was the first time I was in Cuba. So I had to go back to Cuba um, to get yet another photograph and to be a part of their um, their forensic investigation. They were they were doing uh, they were trying to do everything they could within their means to scientifically prove that the body they had found in Cuba um, was Torriente, um, the, they wanted me to bring some soil from the cemetery in Queens. So I went to, I went to, I went to in Queens with a shovel and stood in the middle of a field of bodies and started digging one day. <laughs> and, uh, and I brought that down to Cuba, probably also breaking a couple of customs laws. I'm not really sure. I mean, I won't um, say anything if you don't. Yeah, no, it's not <laughs> like I'm saying it publicly on something that's going to air online or anything. Um, but I, uh, I, I went down there and I was part of the, the team that did that research. And, and again, I will let you read the book to find out how that all turned out. But yeah, yes, no, that's, I did that, end up, as a result, having to go to Cuba twice for the project. That, that's actually a lot of fun. Is that your favorite trip? Was the the Cuba trips to get? Uh, the Cuba trip was really great, and then I did um, I did a trip that was uh, I started in Arizona. Um, okay. Um, so I started there, and I got my Ted Williams picture, and uh, then I, I drove over to California and drove up the entire West Coast and did all of California. There's like 25 Hall of Famers buried in California, so that was a massive swath of guys, um, and then. Uh, 
walked over to uh, um, Idaho quickly uh, to visit Harmon Killebrew's grave and then jumped over to Washington because there was a couple of guys in Washington. And that trip, that was like a two-week trip, uh, road trip, that was uh, that was incredible. I just had the best time. I got to be honest, all of them were awesome. <laughs> there, was, there were very few, very few of the road trips um, I, I didn't enjoy. There were times when it got a little grueling. You know, I drove... I drove 40,000 miles for this project. I also flew 40,000 miles. Um, but for the most part, um, the road trips were, were the best part of this whole thing. I had a blast. Would you do the road trips alone or would, would you take your kids? And, it depended. Sometimes I, I was alone and other times um, Anna came with me. A lot of our family vacations um, for the, you know, the eight years that I was working on the project were, were centered around um, who's buried there. You know, so it's, uh, we had some very, family focused um road trips <laughs> where where I was finding other things for the family to do in you know Cleveland because we had to go through there so right all right i got to ask you this cuz I, I i personally don't know favorite player from any era favorite player my favorite player of any era i mean i can favorite such a it's such a strong word. word to parse. <laughs> I know. And, you know, because I have different guys that I value for different things. I think sure. the most important player in baseball history is Jackie Robinson. I have a, a, a personal uh, affection for Yogi Berra. Um, I, I love Yogi. I love Yogi for uh, a bunch of different reasons. Um, I, I, I've been a Mets fan since about 1984. I, I, I grew up, I was born in 1972 and I grew up with a dad who was a Yankees fan. And so I was a Yankees fan um, until about 1984. And then two things happened simultaneously around then. Um, the Mets got good and I hit puberty and had to reject <laughs> everything my father stood for. Oh, no. So <laughs> so I became a Mets fan around 1984. Yogi is one of the few who has an important history with both teams. Right. Um, you know, Yogi, Yogi uh, managed the team in 73. Um, when they were in the World Series, he was one of Gil Hodges' coaches in 69. Um, he, uh, he, he's a figure in both. But beyond that, beyond, beyond you know, the, the, the teams he played for, um, Yogi to me is one of the most underappreciated players. And I know that sounds funny to say for a guy that even people who aren't baseball fans have heard of right, his name the is very reason, right the reason most people have heard of him is because we make such a big deal out of his innocent wit his yogiisms right all of the the cute funny things that he said mm -hmm. um you know that are that have worked their way into the american lexicon it's deja vu all over again we come to a fork in the road take it like you know it's basically william shakespeare and then yogi Berra when it comes <laughs> to phrases in the english language that we still use to this day right. yogi was one of the best if not the best catchers in the history of the game uh, all around, you know, Mike Piazza was probably the best catcher offensively at the plate. Um, but, but the whole package, you know, what they did as the field general, uh, of the team and, and how they steered them. Um, what Yogi Berra did was unprecedented, you know, and, and people who know baseball know how important a catcher is on, on the field. It's, you know, you know, when you've got a team 
that, that features those characters, those infamous characters of, of Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin and Whitey Ford, um, to be a guy like Yogi, you know, who was, who did not look like a baseball player. And yet once they stepped out on that field, Yogi was, you know, the man who made it all happen. Um, so I, Yogi is definitely up there. Uh, if you step outside of major league baseball, um, I have a, 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 a huge fan of, of the Negro leagues and that whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you step outside of major league baseball, my, the, the Negro leaguer that I keep coming back to time and time again is, is a guy named Saul White. Saul White played in the 19th century, um, uh, which is, you know, another one of those reasons why folks haven't really heard of him. Um, but he did so much more than play. He ended up ultimately becoming an executive and a manager. And he wrote the very first history of, of Negro league baseball. So, you know, he was also a historian. Um, and he happens to have also been because of where he's buried, he's buried in Staten Island, which is where I was living when I began the project. He's also the first guy in the hall ball. He's picture number one in the hall ball is Saul White. To me, Saul's story is sort of a quintessential Negro leagues story. You know, he dedicated his entire life to the game. And, um, and when it was all over, he had nothing to show for it. The reason he's buried in Staten Island, he didn't live there. He probably never set foot on Staten Island in his life. He lived in Harlem. Um, but when he got old, uh, he had no connection with his family. In fact, for the longest time, we thought he had no family. But he, he died penniless in a state hospital in Long Island and was you know buried in a communal grave um, by the auspices of this uh, one funeral home based out of Harlem. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a tragic story that to me encapsulates just how hard it was for the Negro leaguers to do what they did. You know, a lot of them had jobs in the, in the winter. Yogi had a job, uh, when he wasn't playing, he came home those first few years, especially he came home and he worked in the winter. Um, you know, for Negro leaguers, because their pay was even worse, the baseball season never ended. Uh, when it got too cold in the United States, they went down to the Dominican Republic or Cuba or Mexico and they played there. It was, uh, it, being a Negro League baseball player was what you did all year long. Uh, and it was, um, you know, talk about a passion and a love for the game. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm sitting here saying that I don't, at the beginning of this conversation that I don't want baseball players to go four and a half months without seeing their families and nearly years went all year. Right. Yeah. Well, man, this was a, a great conversation. I'm so glad to have caught up with you uh, and talk baseball when we have no baseball right now. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, it's a time for historians. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great time for you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we're looking forward to your book. Uh, do you know when it's coming out? Uh, it is due out at the end of May. Um, you can go to um, McFarland's website. I believe it's um, uh, McFarlandBooks.com. I'm not sure. McFarland Publishers, uh, The Hall Ball. You can also get it through Amazon, although, you know, if you if you want to not support the, the, the big evil machine that is Amazon and you want to buy it directly <laughs> through the publisher, um, that, that would be great. Um, I, I urge people to please go out and get it. Um, mainly because publishers really love pre-sales and I want to make my publisher happy. Um, so sure, uh, uh, check out their around. website and, uh, and you can pick it up. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ralph. Thank you, Oscar. It was great talking to you.